I don't know how bad I want to keep exhausting this metaphor because I don't know anything Ooh. about cars, but... Was exhausting a, a, a intentional pun? Sure. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are from San Diego, California. And you are Cassidy Robinson, and you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we are going to be reviewing Jordan Peele's new sci-fi horror film, Nope. And the streaming homework is also a film from this year, which is still available in some theaters, but on Netflix. The Hindi action musical, RRR. And you're you're going to uh, recap us on your last weekend at Comic-Con. But before we get into that, we we've been a little backed up on our... R.I.P.s lately, and oh, we've had a bunch yeah. of them. Yeah. We've had a bunch of more than I even remembered. I went back and looked, you know, because I try and post on our uh, Twitter and Instagram when notable entertainers, directors, uh, actors, what have you, die. And I realize there's been a few that have, big ones that have come recently. So, R.I.P. James Kahn. Yeah. That was a few weeks ago now. R.I.P. David Warner, uh, who I believe, wasn't he in uh, last week's streaming homework? Uh, uh, The the Company of Wolves. Company of Wolves. I was like, oh, we just watched a movie with him in it. David Warner. He was the father in it. Yeah, he was the, the dad, right? Yeah, I mean, he's in a bunch of stuff. He was in Tron. Um... He was in uh, Titanic. Uh, he was in TMNT Secret of the Ooze. Yes, he was in that. Wow, that's a deep cut. Yeah, yeah. Um, so R.I.P. David Warner. R.I.P. Paul Servino. People probably know him best as Polly from Goodfellas. He was also in The Stuff. He was a you know character actor like, the, like Warner. He was in a lot of stuff. R.I.P. director Bob Rafelson. He was the creator of the television show The Monkees. He also directed the film for The Monkees Head. And then later on, kind of become a big 70s new Hollywood director. Uh, he produced Easy Easy Rider and The Last Picture Show. And uh, uh, he directed uh, Five Easy Pieces with Jack Nicholson. So a uh, big, big part of that era. Um, yeah. But most of all, and I, f- I feel like we should take a, a beat on this, R.I.P. the Choco Taco. When was the last time you even fucking had a Choco Taco? You know, it's been a minute. I, yeah, that's why it's not being sold anymore. I know, I'm part of the problem, Keith. I fully admit it. I was uh, going to try and get one because I know that they're being discontinued by the Klondike Company. And I knew of one store here that sold them. Um, they did not have any. 
So I had to settle Here's for a thing. drumstick. I enjoyed the Choco Taco. Uh, I'm not going to disparage the Choco Taco. I'm not going to say it was a, a a bad dessert by any means. We'll not um, have any Choco Taco slander on this podcast. No, no. I mean, you know, it's a it's a reliable go to frozen treat. But I will say, mm-hmm. haven't we as a society? progressed past the need of the Choco Taco? I don't know who needs funny-shaped ice cream treats really ever, but it's the thought that counts. You could make a a homemade Choco Taco. Actually, there was somebody in my work chat today who was wondering if they could make a keto Choco Taco. Yeah. And I know they make Cheeto ice cream, or Keto ice cream. They probably make Cheeto ice cream as well. Yeah. Uh, I know they make Keto ice cream. I don't know if they have Keto waffle cones. Those are your two key ingredients. I mean, I'm sure. The, the, there's a Keto option for just about anything at this point. You know, it's, yeah. it's very similar to like gluten-free as far as accessibility right it would take some ingenuity but i feel like it could be done uh i was looking on reddit when this news dropped and i found this this uh eulogy that i thought was appropriate it says here by filthy grunger who was awarded eight reddit awards i thought it would be here forever and I always always told myself, I'll have one later, but later is here, and the Choco Taco is not. It's like losing a dog, but instead of a loving animal, it's an ice cream filled taco topped with chocolate and nuts. Honestly, if there was anything I could say about its passing, I would say that the world didn't just lose an ice cream taco, it lost its way. <laughs> All right, pour one out for the Choco Taco. Yes, or rather have it melt on the counter as it usually did because it didn't take nearly long enough for them to melt and get kind of soggy. Yeah. You know, this is uh, this is making me want a snack, and I know I have a pint of uh, Ben and Jerry's waiting for me after we record, so that's <laughs> something to look forward to. Yeah, um, let's go ahead and get to your Comic-Con recap before we get into the movie reviews. You're in San Diego. You usually go every year. They haven't had one for a couple of years, at least like a real Comic-Con. Yeah. This is the first year they brought it back swinging. So, you know, anyone who followed us on Instagram or follows you individually, uh, at MacGuffinPod or at Keith Foster Kid, were able to see some of your cosplays. You were recently featured in a cosplay... A slideshow or something by USA Today, which is cool. Yeah, I was I got uh, I got into USA Today, Variety, and AP News. Wow, look at you! Yeah, two of those were uh, Loki, and then my uh, my Elden Ring, uh, where where I cosplayed as my character from Elden Ring, that made it into uh, the AP News. But um, Loki was USA Today and Variety, so uh, kind of fun. Yeah. So if anyone wants to go on our Instagram and look at those, 
Uh, those pictures are still up. But uh, regale us with this year's Comic-Con. What did you see? What's worth talking about? There was a lot of big movie drops, movie news yeah, drops, yeah. Uh, and I announcements mean, yeah. as and, usual. And there's also, you know, a lot of recaps online, so I'm not going to go through everything. Sure. Um, what was, what think, stood out to you? Yeah, I think the the... I mean, first of all, it was just that it's back. Like, it is back, baby. Once Marvel announced that they were coming, that they had a presentation, that was kind of the the signal, you know, of like, oh, okay, this is, it's going to be real Comic-Con again. So, you know, there was a lot of hype for for Marvel, for their presentation. And there were also some new new players in town, new... Uh, you know, there's a lot more streaming options than there were three or four years ago. So Apple TV had a pretty big presence. Uh, HBO Max had a booth. Uh, Disney Plus had a booth. Uh, Hulu had a booth. So all these, you know, all these different streaming options were present that that were not there before. So that was exciting. And that was more like the convention floor. Uh, but they did, you know, they also have these off-site events, these o- experiences that you can do. And there were a few of those that there were, there were, uh, there were four big ones. There was The Gray Man uh, w- for Netflix, which I did not do, but I heard that experience was kind of disappointing. Like it was very quick and, you know, all you got was like a little like a, a, a video clip of yourself, like running through the sort of obstacle course. There was a Game of Thrones House of the Dragon offsite event, uh, which I did not get to experience. I heard that one was pretty cool. It like has to tie in with their augmented reality app or whatever. Uh, the two I did get to do was the Dungeons and Dragons Tavern, which was a promotion of the new Dungeons and Dragons movie. And they took, you know, this old closed-down bar and just totally decked it out in Dungeons & Dragons stuff. It made it feel like you were in sort of this fantasy tavern. You came in, you got to hang out. There's like a little bit of a a show, and you got a free drink. uh, A free Dragon's Brew, which was really fun. So that one was really cool. But the winner of the offsite events, the Undisputed King was the severance uh, activation. I, I don't know if you're familiar with severance, Cassidy. I know it's a show. I think it's on... What is it on? It's on Apple+. Plus. Yeah. There was a severance panel, which was a, a really big deal. That was one of Is the... it a sci-fi fantasy-oriented show? Or I thought it was kind of a drama, wasn't it? Uh, I would... It's it's sci-fi. Um, it's a sci-fi uh, sort of corporate horror drama. I it's very difficult to explain, mm-hmm. but it's cool. It's a really good show. Uh, it's directed by Ben Stiller. Um, uh, he's the show showrunner, uh, director for most of the episodes, and it's starring uh, Adam Scott, uh, John Turturro. Uh, anyway, it's it's very cool. They're, they just finished their first season uh, early this year. So it was kind of surprising for them 
for Apple TV to kind of go all in on Severance, especially when they have sort of other shows that have been around a little bit longer that maybe sort of fit the the Comic-Con crowd a little bit more. But the, the hype was real. The Severance panel was... Uh, very cool. Um, I, I didn't get to go to it, but a lot of people really liked it. And then there was this activation, which probably the most immersive offsite event I have ever done. Uh, and, and this is high praise because I got to do the Westworld one a few years ago that was sort of the reigning champion of offsite events. They basically recreated the sets of the show and let you walk through this immersive experience that, that, you know, it was, it, it took me about 20 minutes, a half hour. So it was, you know, it was well worth the, the wait in line. It was just the level of detail they put into it. And they had like actual props from the show that you could like play with. It was, it was just so well done. Uh, so Apple TV was one of the big winners of the con and then, of course, there were the big movie panels. There was a Dungeons & Dragons panel. Um, there was a panel for the new Lord of the Rings series. Uh, but I'm I'm going to just talk about... Uh, oh, there was a Sandman panel for Netflix, which was probably my favorite panel this year. It was just very well done. A lot of good clips, a lot of trailers, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but... I want to talk about, you know, the movie stuff. You know, for the most part, usually with Comic-Con, it comes down to, you know, Warner Brothers DC versus Marvel. Uh, Warner Brothers DC always kicks off the presentation on Saturday morning, and Marvel closes us out at the end of the day. Uh, so this year, this year DC was pretty sparse. You, there was rumor that they wouldn't even be there at all. They're, you know, they're trying to do their own sort of event thing with DC fandom that started during the pandemic. So it felt like they were very much withholding because they're like saving stuff for their own event or whatever. Yeah. So all they showed us was Shazam. You know, there was a Shazam panel where we got to see the debut of the trailer and then there was a Black Adam panel, which, as far as spectacle goes, was very cool. They had the rock levitating uh, six feet above the stage in, with this lightning effect that was very incredible. They showed some clips from that and uh, another trailer. I, I don't know if everything was released online, uh, but the new trailer got me uh, way more excited than any of the previous stuff has done. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to Black Adam, but it was for Warner Brothers. It was more about what they didn't talk about. They didn't talk about any updates on the Flash movie. I wonder uh, why. Well, yeah, exactly. Like they are in some PR trouble right now. They did not talk about the new Aquaman movie. You know, is this because of the Amber Heard controversy? Possibly. Um, Wouldn't it be funny if they just came out and showed a, you know, a sizzle reel or a trailer for the new Aquaman movie, but all of the scenes with Amber Heard, they just superimposed Johnny Depp's face on her body? 
<laughs> I wouldn't put it past anybody at this point. That whole situation was not even saying lines from the movie, just stuff from the depositions, like the Ugh, the God. bed pooping or whatever. I mean, the way people consumed that, you it would not surprise me. Um, right. There was also rumor that there might be some big announcement with Henry Cavill. Cavill? Cavill. With Henry Cavill. Uh, but he was not there. So it was, it just felt a little light on actual content this year. Um, I would actually interpret that the other way. I mean, yes, obviously there's reasons why... You know, the Ezra Miller stuff, they're going to hold back on talking about The Flash as long as possible. Um, They might just cut their losses on that one. Whatever happens, happens with it. Uh, And then with the Aquaman, I actually don't think that's going to hurt Aquaman all that much, um, given that she's a side character. Yeah, Uh, there's there's rumors that they might just be cutting her out of the movie entirely. Or whatever. Yeah, Yeah. Aquaman will be fine. But what it seems to me is that they included, they did a bigger panel for Black Adam and for Shazam because they feel like they have to reintroduce Shazam because it feels like it's been a long time since that movie. Yeah. In, in uh, terms the first of one. Uh, superhero movie years, yes, absolutely. Yeah, in superhero movie years, it might as well have been a decade ago. Um, and for Black Adam, he's a character that nobody really knows about outside of you know, comic store geek yeah. kind of people. True. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, I do agree with you. Like they definitely wanted to build those movies up. They definitely wanted them to be, you know, sort of the star attraction. It just felt weird that, you know, cause typically they at least like show concept art from other movies or something. They usually give you like a little, a little nibble, a little tidbit. So just, it felt, a little empty that there was nothing else. Um, and I'm very curious to see if they're still doing DC fandom this year or, you know, what's going on with that. I'm very curious. Typically Marvel in the past has skipped Comic-Con altogether to save all of their big announcements for D23. So it's interesting that they came out and they released this full lineup for what Marvel Phase 5 is going to be, and then they teased what Marvel Phase 6 is going to be. So the big reveals, these weren't really reveals. We knew Black Panther 2 was closing out Phase 4. The movies for Phase 5 will be Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, um, which we got to see a full trailer of. Uh, That is as far as I know, not leaked online yet. There will be Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which we also got to see a full trailer for. And that presentation was pretty emotional. It was, you know, like James Gunn came out. uh, They had just, most of the cast had just seen the trailer like moments before their little panel. So they were all kind of in tears because this is the last movie of of sort of James Gunn's version of Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, So, you know, it felt very much like this is the Guardians as we know it are coming to an end. Um, So, yeah, and, you know, all the stuff with the controversy with James Gunn, uh, it it was just, like I said, very emotional. And then um, 
And then obviously Black Panther was very emotional as well. Um, uh, they had some African uh, folk music kick off this presentation. They released the trailer, which I'm sure everybody has seen by now. And uh, R- director Ryan Coogler gave a very touching tribute to um, Chadwick Boseman. It was, again, just, you know, by the end of the day, you're emotionally drained, you're emotionally exhausted. Uh, and then they announced that uh, Sam Wilson would get his own Captain America movie at the end of Phase 5, Captain America New World Order. And Phase 5 will close out with the Thunderbolts, which is kind of the the Easter eggs they've been laying through the last few movies and, and TV shows. That's one of the Easter eggs they've been building up to. And then they released that the first movie of Phase 6 will be Fantastic Four. And closing out Phase 6, which will close out the, the multiverse saga, as they're calling it, uh, will be two more Avengers movies, Avengers The King Dynasty and Avengers Secret War. So, uh, Right. You know. So, And these are both in the same phase? Yeah, they, they will be. I think that's going to be kind of like the the Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, how they kind of <laughs> were two movies tied together. I, th- I think that's kind of oh one and forward. part one and part two okay because yeah it seemed to me like and I guess that's just what we're doing now but I, it okay. seemed to me like it could be a multiverse thing where now we could have like separate universes running in tandem and and well, coming to different announce- culminations. Yeah, uh, they. I. I mean, who knows what these are going to be? Um, they didn't announce anything else of Phase Six, so I think a lot of those announcements are going to be made at D twenty three. I'm. I, I was a little surprised. I mean, that's a lot be, right there. Oh yeah, I mean it. It's a lot. Uh, the the thing I was surprised we didn't get any information about was um, the X Men. So I think. That will be the sort of big reveal at D twenty three is, and maybe some casting information about the Fantastic. Yeah, do you think they're um, keeping their lips tight about that, or they just legitimately haven't really started putting that together yet? No, I think they're just keeping their lips tight about it. I mean, that's something that Marvel has been pretty successful with so far is is keeping their little secrets. Uh, a lot of speculation gets, you know, sort of leaked online, but a lot of that ends up being like theories and gets debunked or gets uh-huh. changed. Um, yeah, so I mean, this whole lineup is available, and that's what the next and, like what five years is of our lives are going to be right now. Uh, until twenty twenty five is the next is the end of phase six. <sighs> it's like going to a buffet. And just looking at everything, going, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> it I, is a lot. It's a lot, especially when you get it all at once. Yeah. But they've done this before, where they release this whole timeline, and yeah, I mean that's changed. what that's their thing now, and and you know they have to. These projects are so big and multi-stranded and and connected that they have to kind of think of things more like television. 
they're lo- they're kind of looking at things like seasons of television more than they are like individual film projects. So they have multiple things kind of being in various stages of development at all times. And if you look at Disney, that's not new. If you look back no. at like you know the heyday of their animation in the in the early nineties, like from Little Mermaid to Hunchback, they. You know, they had A and B projects that they were working on simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, you're right. This is, and I think that's a big part of why, you know, the MCU has been able to sort of sustain itself, even when there are movies that that aren't as successful, like The Eternals. the The way the machine runs, it, it it's fine because it's just on to the next project, on to the next project. We've already got this ready to go. You know, since it's yeah. all in house, it, it it operates pretty smoothly. It would um, it would take just like I mean, well, I mean, you know, we had like <laughs> we had a pandemic, um, and that was putting question marks over a lot of things for a lot for a little while there. But it looks like yeah. you know things are running again um, as they were before. Uh, but, you know, outside of outside conditions like that, you know, just looking at things monetarily, it would take a string, a series, like a couple years worth of flops in, in order to affect the factory that is Disney Marvel. Absolutely. And, and yeah, it is just exactly that. It is just a machine at this point. It is ready to go. I, Mm. you know. Uh, Secret Invasion, oh, which we got a trailer for that, and it looks very cool. Uh, that's going to be a Disney Plus series. Uh, Disney Plus series Echo, which uh, is sort of a spinoff from um, Hawkeye, if you watch that. Season 2 of Loki. Um, the Marvels, which I don't know if that's a movie or a TV show. Uh, Blade, which I don't know if that's a movie or a TV show. Iron Hearts. Agatha, Coven of Chaos, which is a spinoff of WandaVision. Oh, uh, they did announce officially they're bringing Daredevil back and uh, with Daredevil Born Again. Yeah, uh, and with Charlie actually, Cox, right? With Charlie Cox. And mm-hmm. it's it's going to be like 18 episodes. So, you know, it's it's going to be a big project for Disney+. Plus. It's, it's very interesting. Um, anything exciting that happened on the floor, you know, just cool stuff you saw anybody, did you meet anybody? Uh, so yeah, I, we managed to get into the fandom party, which is like the biggest party at Comic-Con anymore. And we got into that where I met from last podcast on the left, I met, uh, Ben Kissel. And had a a lovely little conversation with him. Uh, he complimented my beard. Um, he's a very nice guy. It was very cool. Oh, uh, 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 we did meet the composer of the score for Loki and Obi-Wan. Uh, she, Natalie Holt, uh, we met her at the, um, Ready Party One event, which was a lot of fun. Uh, we were all dressed as Lokis, so, uh, we got to talk to her for a minute, and since she composed the score for Loki... Uh, she was very nice as well. All right. Were, are you like swayed by 
the marketing behind either the Lord of the Rings show or the new Game of Thrones? Because I feel like both of those are sort of dead on arrival. I don't feel like anybody wants either of those things to happen. Okay. Yes, I was I was pretty swayed by the new trailer for Game of Thrones. I think I think it has potential and Game of Thrones ended on such a sour note. It it literally erased its own legacy of being the greatest show of all time. So I think there is this want for House of the Dragon to be good. And I think there is a possibility that if it if it's enough of its own thing, it could be really cool. So I, I, I have, I'm cautiously optimistic for House of the Dragon. Okay. The Lord of the Rings one, man, I don't fucking know. It, they have dumped so much money into both the show itself and the marketing of the show. Like, it, it was a, a huge presence at Comic-Con. And it seemed like generally people were pretty excited about it. So I, I think the the marketing campaign might be starting to work. For me, I just, I, I'll have to see it, you know. I Of course I will watch it, but it, it will never top the, the, the trilogy. The Lord of the Rings trilogy is, you know, arguably some of my favorite movies of all time. And it's so self-contained that it, it, to me, it's it's weird to do this whole prequel show thing. I I don't know. I'm still not sold on it. Okay. So Game of Thrones, I'm leaning towards a little bit more. I feel like there's more there uh, than Lord of the Rings. All right. I guess we shall see. Go ahead and move on to Nope. And I'll uh, I'll set this up as best as I can. Uh, we will try and avoid spoilers, um, at least up to a point. Maybe we can get to a spoiler zone if, if, we, if we have to. This is a new film that is written and directed by Jordan Peele. Comedian, came out of Mad TV, eventually did Key and Peele on Comedy Central. Uh, stepped out on his own, started making straight horror films. First with Get Out, which he got an Oscar nomination for, and uh, the movie Us, which I feel is still a little um, misunderstood, uh, maybe a little underseen. And this is his follow-up. This takes place in Inland, California, at a ranch, a movie ranch, uh, that's owned by O.J. Haywood and Emerald Haywood. They are brother and sisters. Uh, their father... Otis recently passes away in a mysterious accident and Daniel Kalua plays OJ, his sort of withdrawn and shy son and Kiki Palmer, who plays Emerald, who is quite the opposite is very uh, type a personality and uh, uh, an aspiring actress and, has all of these side gigs going on, but she still feels some responsibility to help take care of this ranch. She's sort of more of the face of the operation, while OJ is more of the uh, horse wrangler and professional of the two. They've sort of run into tight times. They've had to sell a few horses uh, to a competitor, uh, played by Stephen Ewan, 
who runs a, a ranch a few miles down from theirs. It's also sort of a, like a Wild West uh, theme park. Uh, he's an ex-child actor whose show was terminated when a chimp accident almost kills everybody on set except for him. And they've been selling horses and trying to keep their operation running when O.J. first notices this weird phenomenon in the sky, these cloud formations that don't seem to be moving like normal. They spook the horses, and occasionally things have been lost. You know, the dummy horses, flags, things like that. Uh, and this leads them to try and capture whatever's going on with the help of a Fry's Electronics employee named Angel, played by Brandon Pereira, who, once he gets the idea like, oh, there's some alien shit going on, he's all in and he wants to try and be part of this moment because he's like a big ancient aliens head. And so you have all these interested parties including Steven Yuen, who we find out is also a little bit more on the know of what's going on in the sky and has his own plans for it, interested in this phenomenon and trying to sort of uh, prove it or disprove it or monetize it. And yeah, this is a movie largely sort of running on mystery, which is not uncommon for Jordan Peele. He, he likes to sort of hold his cards close to his chest and he doles them out sparingly and lets the sort of mystery box unfold as you watch. And as noted, when I first saw the poster, when I first saw the early teasers, I was saying, I feel like kind of an early Spielberg vibe going here. Um, that is very much what's going on here. Uh, a lot of this movie feels... Like it's taking sort of the the dread and the mystery elements from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And the structure of the plot feels very similar to Jaws. Um, what did you think of Nope? Hmm. So I'm still I'm still hmm. kind of processing it. Yeah, you saw it what, yesterday? Tuesday, yeah. So two two days ago. Yeah, so I I wrote my review for it on on Monday. I think I watched it on Sunday afternoon. I wrote it on Monday night, and I did not know what my review was going to be until I did it. Sure. Like usually, yeah, I, I kind of had an idea. I have an idea of like the points I want to hit, and you know if it's a positive or negative review. I I literally did not know any of the above until I was able to sit down and actually put paragraphs in a word document. I was like, that's kind of how I feel about this. I, you know, I usually have some idea of what I want to say mm -hmm. on the show before we start talking and, and uh, points I want to get to. Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I kind of am just going into this one a little blank. I do. I, I absolutely agree with you with the Steven Spielberg stuff. He's, he's, you know, directly referencing uh, Jaws and Close Encounters. This is kind of a, a, a mashup of both of those mm. uh, in terms of story. And, and aesthetics. And, you know, I, I 
I will say I think he pulls it off a, a bit better than some of the other, uh, you know, claim people who have tried to claim the the Steven Spielberg throne because. As much as he enjoys the mystery box game, I think he puts enough work into his characters yeah. that other directors who are more going for sort of the spectacle uh, uh, tend to be lighter on. And that's something I really enjoyed about this movie is I feel like we get a, a pretty clear sense of who these characters are. And for the first chunk of it, you know, we'd see a lot of just these characters sort of hanging out. You know, there's a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily even related to the, the larger mystery mm -hmm. um, that I think is interesting. I Which is something think... you would you would see a lot in early Spielberg movies, is he puts a lot of legwork in the characters and gets you invested in them before, you know, putting them in peril or putting them in the genre situation. Um, yeah. You know, if you look at, like, the first half of Jaws, there's a lot of just conversation set pieces. Of course, you know, the shark didn't work, blah, blah, blah. They had to figure things out. But that does a lot for what that movie is, and that later became a signature. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that definitely works in this movie's favor as well. Like, it, it, it takes its time to build to this fucking craziness. <laughs> right. Uh, that, to me, makes it feel a lot more earned than the J.J. Abrams stuff and, and things like that. I feel like he does the, the groundwork to get us invested. I also think there's... This movie is definitely having an interesting conversation about uh, trauma and the way we uh, uh, capitalize on trauma and the way we, you know, the, the way we will, are willing to showcase trauma for entertainment and for for fame you know mm -hmm. so i think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there i don't know if it's necessarily always the cleanest or most straightforward but i i kind of like that i i kind of like that this movie is playing with these big ideas and there isn't necessarily a, a clear answer to some of it yeah, um, I'm of two minds because I feel like he's not taking the easier path and I commend him for that. But I also feel like the movie kind of feels like a collection of scenes, like disparate scenes and set pieces and ideas that haven't fully been baked together into a cohesive narrative. There's something about it narratively that isn't operating like it should. You know, it's like when you get in a car and you turn the engine over and it just something doesn't feel right. I you lift the hood, everything's still there. There's still an engine. But, you know, I don't know how bad I want to keep exhausting this metaphor because I don't know anything about cars. But was exhausting a. Uh, uh Intentional pun? Sure. Um, <laughs> there's all the Spielberg stuff happening for sure. and But it's almost kind of like Spielberg by way of uh, Magnolia, where where there's all it's like there's, you know, this flashback sequence with Steven Yuen's character on the set of this on this sitcom 
which, you know, kind of ties in with everything, but kind of doesn't. And then there's doesn't tie there's, in di- like directly, no. But but right, it it's more thematic. Thematic, yes. Yeah. The and and this is sort of how I I remember how we felt about you know Jordan Peele didn't direct it or write it, but it, I I have similar issues with it. So sort of how I felt about the the Candyman remake, where I feel like the themes are sort of dictating the narrative, where. He puts things in there because he wants to hit on these themes and they're not always harmonizing with each other. They're not always driving the story forward. These characters kind of exist individually in their own worlds while at the same time, uh, you know, cohabitating the, the story of the movie. But at no point was I, and maybe the part of it is because the character, like the basically the main protagonist, is is uh, Daniel Kaluuya's character, and he's playing this very interior, shy, man of few words, man of purpose kind of character. I guess well, sort of the I mean, Roy Scheider he's type. A cowboy, yeah, yeah, a, a very stoic. You know, old old Hollywood cowboy. And maybe there's something about that approach where he is so impenetrable that there's there's like a you know the the normal sort of like tie to empathy to main character just isn't there. So I don't feel like I'm on the journey with him as much as I would like to be. Even though Kiki Palmer is doing everything she can to sort of help that along, I don't know, I still kind of feel at arm's length from the movie. I I both see what you're saying with the Candyman comparison, it, and I, I kind of agree. But I, I do think this movie does do a better job of tying it together, at least thematically. Um, I, I feel like... I, I think this is a better movie, just, just by way of the filmmaking, I think it's much better. But yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and but I have there's I, again, a similar iciness to both. I see that to me that's the difference is is I did feel this iciness to Candyman. I didn't feel it to this, even though um, Daniel Kaluuya is is this colder character. I I feel like their chemistry together and their and you know just the ensemble here. Uh, and the uh, angel with the you know the Fry's electronic guy. Mm-hmm. I think they all work really well together, and and that that's enough to draw me in. And him as an animal tamer, you know, this horse trainer, I got the connection. Um, yeah. But but yes, it it's not it's not done in a way that necessarily drives the narrative forward. But I also don't necessarily hate that. You know what I mean? Like. We give someone like David Lynch credit to to be as weird as possible, and and I appreciate that, and to to approach a movie wholly thematically with almost no guiding story. So I I appreciate Jordan Peele's willingness to take those swings and and try to include something in 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 something that is meant to be this big you know, uh, appealing blockbuster of a movie. Uh, um, 
it, it is definitely a risk. And does it always work? Maybe not. But ultimately, I'm glad that stuff is in the movie versus it not being in there versus it being totally plot driven because I've seen totally, you know what I mean? Like the totally plot driven movies get, I just get so boring and uninteresting And this. Yeah. There's a thousand UFO movies out there. And I will say this is a very unique take on that. Absolutely. Um, and I, I will say, and, and uh, it's, it's trying to be character driven, which I commend. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think my biggest problem with the movie was sort of my expectation versus what the movie ends up being. And I ended up liking what I got, but I was also like a little disappointed for what I didn't get. You know what I mean? And and I'm starting to get a little to the spoiler zone, so I'll, I'll hold ba- hold back on that. Okay. Um, yeah. But, but I guess what I mean is so there's this whole backstory with this chimp mm-hmm. that again doesn't directly tie into what's going on because it all happens to this peripheral character of Steven Yoon and not our main characters but that stuff is so fucking scary oh it, yeah it's the scariest shit in the movie and, and, and I would so say well probably done. the most compelling as well yeah yeah and not just because I have an innate fear of chimpanzees. No, it's it's done so viscerally. Yeah. And I think our main sort of threat just seems less visceral in ways. It seems less violent, even though uh even though, you know, characters are getting are getting killed by you know, by this sort of extraterrestrial presence. A lot of it is sort of off screen and we don't see you know, there's a lot of people sort of getting sucked out of the movie, and then that's sort of it. Right, yeah. I mean, it's left... It's 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 sort of um, in obscurity for a reason. Yeah, and I wish we could have gotten a, a little bit more of that visceralness that we got with the chimp. I, I, I think there could have been more of a connection there as well. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's... There's kind of a choice to be made on the part of Jordan Peele as a writer. And I feel and I would I think the filmmaking is better than the writing. The the, the choice to be made of you could make OJ the main character and tell the story that we got, or you could make Steven Yuen's character the main character and it would change the dynamic a little bit. And there's a part of me that wonders what what that movie is because I feel like that might have been a little a little tighter and and comprehensive and driven the story a little bit more with motivation than the one we did get. But in an, but I'm kind of glad that he took the less obvious choice in that. And and I do like the story that, that we did get out of it eventually. I think, you know, whatever I feel about the first half of the movie, let's say, which regardless of all of the things we're saying, I think there's pacing issues and there we could we could probably lose fifteen minutes out of this movie and not miss it in, at all. By the second half of the movie, when it when when everything's laid out and we we have a better idea of what's going on and we're not mystery boxing anymore. 
everything's totally working. And I was, I was in it, but it did take a while. And there were, there were some moments where I was like, this is slow and not like in a deliberately paced kind of way, but in a, this movie is a little, a little baggy in the edit. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I can't disagree with you because I, I, but I, I kind of liked that about it. I kind of, I don't know. Th- there's something about this movie. This it, is, it's funny to me because I feel like we're having the exact same conversation we had when we talked about us. Um, yeah. And I think this movie has similar strengths and weaknesses as as us. Um, mm-hmm. Neither of those movies are as concise, as conceptually tight as Get Out was. Um, but I like, I kind of like that messiness. I kind of like that. I kind of like that letting the movie kind of find out what it is on its own uh, because. Because I think he's a good enough director, he's a good enough movie maker that I still get a, a, a product that's entertaining, that it's compelling, that is, you know what I mean? So I, I guess I love his movies for their flaws just as much as anything else. Yeah, no, I'm, I think both Us and Nope are really interesting, and I'm glad that they're, that he He's getting to make the movies that he wants to make. And there, there's something about both of those movies that are sort of exploratory in nature. I also feel they're a little ill-disciplined. And yeah. and I, I'm kind of getting the vibe at this point. And we'll see however many movies down the road this sort of trend continues. Like at this point, he's still a new enough director that I'm like, okay, like... Feel yourself out, get a couple weird ones out, you know, but this has to eventually lead to something. This, this type of exploration, there needs to come to a a point when it all connects for you as a filmmaker, for me to uh, keep giving you the leverage to make movies that are as ill-disciplined as both of these have been. Because at this point, I'm kind of getting the vibe of, of a director who got called a genius way too early on. You know, people are just like, you're Jordan Peele, do the Jordan Peele thing. And, and I'm, and, you know, the film industry is never easy. So I'm sure there's, he's getting told no plenty, but there's, especially on a screenplay level and in the editing room, I think that's the best way I can kind of sum it up is I, I'm not saying that he's an egomaniac and he no, doesn't. No, 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 no. You know, but I but I do feel like he he allows for things to sort of unfold on screen instead of in the writer's room where they should be unfolding. Yeah, I I agree with maybe that, but I I think even as unrestrained as he is at the moment, we'll always get good work from him, but I would like to I would like to see a movie from him that has this type of ambition but also pays off the genre in a way that's a little bit more satisfying and you know has more of a holistic 
of a piece feeling when it's all said and done. I, I, I mean, I agree with you. Of course, I, you know, I want, I don't know, though. I, but at the same time, like, I have just, thorough, I've just thoroughly enjoyed the, the theater going experience so much with, with all of his movies. Mm -hmm. That there, there is some charm about them. That that he honestly he could keep making movies like this forever, and I would be perfectly satisfied. Of uh, do I want him to have his John Carpenter's The Thing? Of course, of course I do. But if if he never got there, I would be equally, maybe not equally, but I would still be satisfied. You know what I mean? Like. As long as I'm getting movies of this quality, I'm I'm gonna enjoy them. I'm going, you know what I mean. I do agree with you that that you know maybe he hasn't quite gotten. I don't know. I I don't want to say that he hasn't earned his reputation because I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, at this point, we're speculating on on you know his future projects and things like that. Um, right. Yeah. But I just judging his body of work as it exists right now, he's still one of the directors that I am the most excited when I find out he has a new project. You know, he could be like, he could release the, because he tends to release a name and a poster before any other details of a movie. He could do that tomorrow and I would be like, fuck yeah. Like, absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, I have still just enjoyed the theatrical movie going experience and he is making movies for the theater. And I, I appreciate that. And this is no exception. Like this movie is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. It is so well shot. And, and um, you know, I recommend seeing it on uh, an IMAX or a digital screen. Um, his night scenes are so well lit. And just like you can see everything mm -hmm. uh, in ways that, you know, he's not relying on ultra darkness to provide the scares. Like, it's just it is a beautiful movie shot by uh, Hoyt von Hoytima, who's also worked with uh, Christopher Nolan um, a few times. Uh, I think he might have. Did he shoot? I want to say he shot. Yeah, he did Ad Astra, he did Interstellar, he did Dunkirk, um, he did Her. Okay. So, very good cinematographer, and this is shot on um, IMAX film, so the frame is larger, and it has a interesting aspect ratio. Um, so, it's meant to be seen on very large screens. Uh, and well, I believe and, and when I was, uh, I was watching an interview with him. And the cast, and he had like a a watch list, a movie list for his actors before they had the screenplay delivered. And one of those movies, I mean, obviously, Close Encounters on Jaws was on that, um, as well as Alien uh, and No Country for Old Men. And I think specifically that first half of the movie, you know, those night scenes, uh, looking out into the pasture... Uh, certainly evokes some of the shots from from No Country, especially looking out at like the truck lights far in the distance and that kind of stuff. It doesn't yeah, have the and, same and also, tension as those scenes, um, but no, yeah, 
but uh, but he he did capture the aesthetic. But and this you know this is also very much a western movie. It is you know it has that that scope of a western. It has that visual appeal of of those type of western movies. So it's, it's right. The landscape kind of plays a character in the film. Absolutely, it's it's this western horror mashup. For me, it's sort of hard to to quantify a movie like this. Well, I mean, it's certainly it's genre hopping. It's genre defying. In yeah, maybe too much sometimes. I don't know. Um, I well, okay. I want to so see that... this movie again. Here's the deal: is even though I'm giving it kind of a mixed review because. Mm-hmm. When I walked out of the theater, I did come out wanting to like it more than I did, just as a an emotional experience. But I, I want to see it again just because I had a blast. I thought it was, you know what I mean? Like it's I think it's such a fun movie that that yeah, um and also to kind of exactly what you're saying too, like to to sort of reaffirm some of my feelings about it Um, yeah i mean i feel like this movie could warm on me like right now i'm sort of b minusing it that's sort of where i'm at with it which is higher than the grade i gave it when i wrote the review a few days ago so i am kind of appreciating it more upon reflection but um i do want i want to see it again and i want to see it again in theaters yeah. Uh, yeah. And I would maybe want to see it again with somebody who hasn't seen it to to sort of get the juxtaposition of somebody who's had a week or so to think about it and somebody who's just experiencing it for the first time. Sure, yeah. Uh, I'm going to give it an A-. minus. I really liked it. I, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I, I do agree... With a lot of the points you're making, but at the end of the day, the movie was just so watchable and entertaining that, that, uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of where I, that's all I'll say. I just want to give a shout out to Michael Abels, who did the score to the movie as well. He also did, um, Us and Get Out, and, uh, all of his movies have, a very unique sort of off the beaten path, more uh, ethereal styled scores. Totally. Totally. Okay. So that is Nope. And uh, yeah, like I said, even though I'm kind of mixed on it, I, I, I still recommend people go see it because it had some of my favorite scenes I've seen in movies. Uh, recently there's like three or four set pieces and scenes that i can think of off the top of my head that goes yep that's uh that's one for the ages yeah oh absolutely um and And great performances you have enough of those in one movie and i i think you know i think that's why i'm willing to give it a little more slack is it it just has these moments that are like you know they're they're the nicole kidman AMC uh, heartbreak feels good <laughs> in a place like this moments. <laughs> okay, I thought you were going to say Nicole Kidman in The Northman. Um, no, 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 no. I no, no her, I just her the magic of movies. The magic of movies. Yes. 
All right. Let's go ahead and talk about your Netflix or your streaming assignment. And that is the film RRR. It didn't premiere on Netflix. It premiered in India. Um, and it had a, a good festival run. But I believe around the same time that it was released in theaters in America, uh, they also went to Netflix and is now the highest grossing Indian film in America, I believe. And uh, maybe the most streamed foreign film. I could be wrong on that one. On Netflix, anyway. I saw some headline that said something to that effect. It's very interesting to me, before we sort of get into the movie, just speaking to that, that, you know, Bollywood is is this such this huge industry. Yeah. Been there but forever. So, yeah. But so, you know, it's it's arguably, you know, second highest next to to American Hollywood industry as far as as movie movies and money goes. Mm-hmm. Interesting to me that so rarely, you know, does does Indian movies do, do Bollywood features sort of make it over here to America and find an American audience, but other foreign films seem to have an easier time. Like it seems like there's something, uh, you know, about you know what I mean? Like Korean and Japanese and ch- and Chinese just seem to tend to pick up a little bit easier here. I don't know. It's it's just a very interesting thing to me. I think there's reasons for that, and we'll get into it with the review. Um, but I would say largely the Indian film industry is not as interested in crossing over. And if you go to Southeast Asia or whatever, and you go to you know, Korea or Japan or one of these places that even if you're like the biggest weeaboo in the world, you'll see some stuff that American, that was not made for Americans to watch. Oh, sure. And, and they'll be doing gangbusters over there. These movies, um, will, will be like the most talked about thing. It will be talked about there as much as like, Marvel anything is talked about here, but will have never heard of it because the cultural uh, specificity is is in such a way that they they don't even bother trying to market it to the West. Sure, yeah. um, and, and I feel and- like just generally speaking, even though Bollywood has a lot of potential to travel well because it's largely built on spectacle and musical and. And effects and stunts and that kind of stuff that, you know, dumb Americans love. Their storytelling is still very rooted in their history and in who they are as people. Sure. Yeah. Um, But go ahead. uh, Before we go too deep into that, let's uh, go ahead and describe the plot of RRR for us here. Uh, So there is uh, this young girl that is taken um, from a group that... This takes place in India in, you know, sort of turn of the century, maybe, you know, around the 20s, um, before the, you know, before World War II, for sure. The majority of the movie takes place in the 20s, but it does start before that point because we started with a few flashbacks. Yeah. You know, there's these British colonizers in Delhi... 
and this one particularly sinister general kidnaps this girl from this tribe. They are, you know, a, a peaceful people that are not that keep to themselves and and live the you know live their quiet life um, in their home, but they have a protector who is willing to you know go out and search for this this girl. He is uh, you know very strong and capable and. Uh, is willing to defend um, with his life if necessary. Then on the other side of things, we have uh, this man who's coming up in in this British army or this colonized army. He is rising up in the ranks. He is very determined and focused and also very strong. He becomes this hunter uh, of this shepherd character who's trying to get this girl back. These two characters cross each other's paths without realizing uh, that their their wants, their goals are in direct opposition of each other and form this bond of friendship until that gets complicated until they sort of figure out who they are to each other actually and how i mean this is a long fucking movie this is a three hour sprawling epic so i don't know how much more i should go into the the plot of it right and you know things are revealed and and you know it, it it pretty much centers on colonial england in India at that time and these different revolutionary forces that these two characters represent. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of disclaimers at the beginning of the film that these, this, these characters are not based in reality and that all of the events are fiction and please do not take this seriously. And it's like, you know, doth protesting way too much before the first frame of the movie. Um, well, I, I, you know, I think talking about cultural differences, if if a movie like this was done in, you, you know, if there was like a revolutionary war movie in this style that's this heightened, uh-huh. uh, you know, American audiences would, would eat it up. But I would think that people wouldn't think it's real. But I don't know. You never know. I mean, The Patriot did happen. Um yeah. And that movie is built on a house of lies. Well, sure, but that movie is trying to be the sort of, uh, you know, historical epic prestige thing. Uh-huh. This movie, RRR, is, like you said, full of spectacle. It's full of these crazy action sequences and musical numbers and visual metaphors and... and I think, you know, pretty early on in the movie, we understand that we're not playing by the rules of reality. It's not reality, but it is the, the film is very, very political. Oh yeah. And yeah, it, it takes explicitly place in a real, so. it takes place in a real world, but everything is so heightened. Everything is, right. is heightened to the utmost emotion. Right. And, 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 you know, when we were talking before we got started here about why 
certain types of Asian film do very well, but in America are travel better than Indian film. I think that's one of the key things is that Indian film um, is very arch and they, they don't have a problem with breaking out into song mid movie, even if it's a violent action film or a war film. Yeah, but I'm fucking here for it. Well, so am I. <laughs> I'm so so am I, but I, I you know it's not just that. It's also the characterizations, the yeah, yeah. the way dialogue well, he, is. Everything is very mannered. Everything's very melodramatic, and that's just it, part of the he, style of Bollywood. It, it seems like um, it seems similar to me as like a lot of you know anime and and manga where um, again just every emotion is sort of you know portrayed heightened to yeah. the to the the maximum that you can feel that emotion. I, I think, you know, maybe the difference is with anime and manga is you're dealing with literal cartoon characters. Uh-huh. So, you know, if they turn into like a chibi version of themselves, it's it doesn't break reality in the same way that I, I guess maybe, you know, in live action, it's a little more jarring to hear the themes of the, you know, to hear the themes of the story sung out for you as to literally what's going on with these characters internally is is very interesting to see in live action. Yeah, I, I just think it becomes a harder sell. And, and I'll say this about RRR before we get into the particulars. I think this is probably the closest they've come to 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 pinpointing an American audience and then going for it, but it, even well, it, I mean, clearly this this movie is it's doing very, very well. It's yeah. doing very well, and I think that it has enough of the hallmarks of like action spectacle that you don't have to you don't have to uh, agree or disagree with the anti colonial message of, of the movie or even know anything about it. Um, Which I loved, but yes. You know, I think you can get into the, you know, there's enough here that's sort of elemental. You know, there's a there's sort of a uh, a Shakespearean, yeah, uh, yeah. a story well, yeah, the, the, going on here for sure. The the um, betrayal, the hidden identities, yeah, the, the you know the reveals, the betrayals, the um, yeah, it is very yeah elemental. It's very you know archetypal. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, and, and and I feel like the the action is and violence and the fight sequences are up there with anything that America produces right now. Oh my god, I uh, yeah, I I mean, so yes, uh, the CGI is a little wonky with some of the animals, but um, yeah, not wonky, just different than we're used to. Um, but some of these action sequences are incredible. Yeah, particularly uh, like the, the war sequences do- and and uh, uh, you know the way th- the way these like street fights break out and are factioned off the pacing of the action. You know, it's a long movie and half of it is just battle. Um, yeah, and that could so- get very exhausting, but it doesn't because the movie has an internal rhythm to it that keeps things chugging along visually well, in a way that doesn't exhaust you. And it's also not just a fight for fight's sake, right? These are these are informing us of our characters. Like, you right. know, the, the the two main characters are introduced uh, with these 
two very separate but incredible action sequences that just tell you everything you know need to know about who these characters are and um that that first one with the the like prison riot mm-hmm. um with a uh, uh i'm gonna i'm gonna fuck up their names with rahu is so fucking cool and it, you know it's just like and you know beam with his their the way they're ensnaring the tiger and and the way that pays off later on is just fucking incredible totally and I, you know there's all there's all these there's all these different ways that the movie sort of breaks things up into chapters you know yeah. these sort of r word chapters that they and, and this idea of like fire and ice and you know um, a lot of the use of the orange and teal uh, juxtaposition in cinematography and color correction. So if that's a thing that bugs you, there is plenty of that in this. Um, uh, yeah, no, it did not bother me. Uh, no, I think it's used intentionally and and to good effect here. Um, but it is also, just certainly out, used. It is specifically fire and water not fire and ice. There is no R in the word ice. (laughs) Okay. Fire and water. I think, you know, narratively, everything, all the action scenes are motivated uh, by the, by the characters in a way that keeps things chugging along. So yeah, I think that's, that's, that's working for it. The only, the only plot thing that I feels like a loose end a bit is there's sort of a love interest with uh, a British, uh, I guess she's the daughter of Ray Stevenson, who plays like the king in this story. Um, General, people, or yeah, people I, I probably remember like, as um the Punisher. He's in the first couple Thor movies. By the way, I loved the villains in this. I loved that they were just like these mustache twirling, outrageously uh, British villains. Oh yeah. my god, so British. But so insultingly British, like every, yeah. every you know, like cliche and stereotype. I loved it. I was, I was like, yeah, they might as well have been delivering every line with crumpet and tea in hand. I think they might have half of them. Yeah, it was <laughs> like if everyone from Downton Abbey was evil as fuck, right? <laughs> um, but Olivia Morris plays the the daughter who who becomes a love interest to one of our main characters. And that story feels like it, it's moving things to a point and then suddenly disappears out of the plot. Yeah. It wasn't the most interesting thing happening in the movie anyway. So I didn't miss it when it was gone, but when she appeared again, I was like, Oh yeah, you were a thing. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting because the whole first half of the movie is about his romance and then the second half of the story, uh, they explore the uh, Raju character more. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the second half sort of focuses more on his backstory and his romance. So I, I do think there's kind of an interesting juxtaposition there. But yeah, those that story never really comes back. He kind of is... I'm not going to say using her to get inside because he does genuinely like her, but, um, it's kind of plot glue. Yeah. A little bit. Um, yeah. Which is also, I mean, it's okay. It's, it's fine for what it's there for. And the first, 
first 25 minutes of the movie or half an hour or so is only setting things up for the rest of it anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's also, like, you know, this really fun dance number that comes out of that. That Oh, yeah. I think that's another reason uh, it's it's doing well is because it, it has all these hallmarks of an American action movie, but it also has these things that break it from that, that separate it in, in really refreshing ways, right? It's not just action, 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 but, you know, it's action broken up with this really cool choreographed, you know, musical number that's just incredible to watch and so fun and lighthearted. And then it's back to this, you know, crazy, insane action. And the two main characters sort of wear their hearts on their sleeves as far as their emotions go. And it's just, that's kind of refreshing that, that, couldn't play in an Avengers movie, you know? Um, I, I mean, arguably it could. It depends on how they did it, but um, a little of that might actually help, I would say. But yeah, I mean, the action scenes have the the rhythm and the, and the flow of a musical sequence, and the musical sequences yeah. have the intensity of action scenes. Totally, um, yeah. And the only director I can think of who kind of approaches that in a similar way in the States uh, is John M. Chu. And I, you know, I, uh, the best moments of the early yeah. Step Up movies I was feeling and I was like, this is what I'm talking about. This is pure cinema. Yeah, I, I actually can't disagree with you. Like, I, I, uh, that, I think that's a really good comparison. And I, I think as a culture, we have maybe, we have steered things to slowly but surely in a dire- in the direction of Arch that some of this could be accepted in American cinema um, or Western cinema. It just has to be done in a certain would, kind of way. I would love it to see. I mean, I've, you know, I've always kind of talked about how it's, sort of frustrating and strange to me that like musical gets sort of pigeonholed as a genre versus, you know, as a genre of its own versus like, why can't we have more genre musicals? Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? And, and I think, yeah, I, I don't know. There, there's just something about this movie that is so anti-cynical. It's just, you know what I mean? It's just these big, broad, not to shit on Zack Snyder too much, because we do a lot <laughs> of that on the podcast, but to see something like that Justice League movie, uh-huh. which kind of approaches action visually in a similar way. There's a lot of slow-mos and stuff in this, mm-hmm. but but it has a rhythm to it. It's, it's exactly what you said. It is done like a musical number. So it never feels monotonous. It never feels masturbatory. Right. And it's also all informed by the characters and their motivations. Yeah, totally. So that's what that's what keeps you involved. Uh, this is directed by S.S. Uh, Ramajuli, or, yeah, Rajamuli. Um, and I haven't seen anything else he's done. And, you know, 
Bollywood movies are a blind spot. I've seen some older Indian film in film school, and by older I mean like sixties. So, and I would like I remember that I think back in like 2014, 15, there was another Indian film that crossed over kind of. Um, but I forgot what it was called, but I would be interested in kind of figuring that out. And, um, you know, it is something that should, I think, be seen more and be in the conversation more. As big of a presence as Bollywood is in world cinema. Absolutely. Uh, and there's, agree. you know, just, this is very entertaining. This is the type of movie that, even though it's a foreign film, and I know that that like bums people out <laughs> as a concept sometimes when you when you talk about uh movies with people who you know generally only see the big things that come out in the year or nothing at all um this is could entertain a wider swath of people than like you know a french new wave film or something oh, absolutely and I, I i mean it is definitely finding its audience over here, I think, because yeah. of that, because it, it just it has this appeal to it. It's so watchable. It's you know, even though it's three hours long, it you know, it's entertaining the entire time. Yeah, and, and the music's great. Um, <sighs> music's so good. It's it's really catchy, and 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 that's another thing that's sort of you know the music and the editing is working in tandem in these scenes and. It, it, there's a there's a pulse to the whole movie. Yeah, for sure. I, it, so yeah, if I, you can see it in theaters, I know in some bigger cities it's playing around. So uh, I actually, <laughs> Ashley and I actually started this movie. Uh, we we went to New York recently for a wedding, mm-hmm. and we started it on the airplane, um, and we got about halfway through it. And then, uh, you know, had this wedding to go to. But we were so, like, jazzed by the first half that we just, like, kept showing people, like, like you know, so the first ten minutes, those, like, two action scenes. Mm-hmm. And it was actually playing in New York uh, in theaters when when we were there. And, I we I you know, I probably could have made it happen, and I kind of wish I had now. Yeah, so if it's still in your city, you know, look for it. Uh, I think on the big screen, again, is probably the way to see this. Um, I, I did watch it from home, and I enjoyed it that way as well. It is long. It's three hours. But, you know, once upon a time, that was really long. That's not that long now. Yeah. Like, your average sure Marvel only... movie is, what, two and a half to 240? For sure, yeah. Or anywhere, anywhere in the two hour to, yeah, Two and a half hour range. Yeah. And this movie's never boring. So. No. no. Uh, it goes by faster than you would think for a movie that long. Also, uh, going back to the subtitle comment a little bit. There's there's a lot of it. It's in English. Um, yeah, that, it's about half you know, and half. Yeah. So I think, um, I think this is, you know, this has definitely got me interested in, in seeing... Uh, at least more movies by this director, um, if mm-hmm. not, you know, kind of uh, in this vein. So, highly recommend. Yeah, I could actually see some um, uh, breakout talent from the movie uh, along the lines of the two leads, uh, N.T. Ramarao Jr. and Ram Sharan. Um, 
oh, both have yeah. a ton of a ton of personality and a ton of charisma. And I would I wouldn't be surprised if they ended up popping up as side characters in like the next Mission Impossible or something. Absolutely, and you know, not for nothing. They're these beefy Indian dudes who have, <laughs> you know, multiple shirtless scenes where they're just sort of, they are not bad looking men. You know what I mean? Like there's definitely some eye candy here too. They look good in their suits. There is sort of a sex appeal to this as well. So mm-hmm. uh, absolutely. I, I could see them, um, both of them sort of crossing over uh, if if that's where they choose to, to take their careers. Sure. So we both definitely recommend RRR, which is on Netflix or possibly still in theater. Uh, but I think it's mostly moved on from from its American run. Yeah, um, I think it was early enough this year that um, it's probably not in too many theaters anymore if it is still around. Yeah, but worth checking if you're in a bigger city. For sure. Uh, the next episode, the streaming homework that I'm going to have us do is the documentary... A Glitch in the Matrix. It's all about simulation theory and people who believe in it. And it should be an interesting conversation. I'm a fan of the director in his previous work. Uh, He also did uh, Room 237. Oh, this is that guy. Okay. Mm -hmm. But yes, we'll talk about that on the next episode. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics we brought up, on this podcast or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mcguffinpod. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash mcguffinpod, where episodes go up as well. You can leave comments under episodes if you choose to do so or share us on your wall. And if you want to follow me, I am on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. Uh, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review over on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Player.fm, whichever uh, podcast app you use. There should be a rating system. And the more ratings we get, the more people will see us in our chosen film and television category. Um, we're also on Good Pods, so that's, that feed is automatically being updated every time a new episode goes up. I never look at Good Pods because I still don't really understand it, but I know that some people, they like to listen to their podcasts with that app. You can read the reviews I write for the Idaho State Journal over at the Idaho State Journal's Arts and Entertainment page. Even if my ratings of the movies are not set in stone, the thoughts and ideas that go into the actual written work, I still stand behind. So that's more important than the grade. And I would say yeah. the same for the, uh, for the podcast as well. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, you can also follow um, my art account on instagram at sticky note aesthetic hopefully i'll post to that again at some point also check out mockingbird improv check out their website and see if you want to see some shows i still am doing uh, improv versus stand-up which has a show every saturday um and 
hopefully I'll I'll have some some dates that I'm scheduled for soon. Cool. That is the episode. What's a bad miracle? Bye.